Hello and welcome. I am Tom Sedlak, the host of the Tom Said What podcast, and today we have the fourth and final part of my conversation with my brother, Dr. Robert Sedlak, MD. In this final part of our conversation, we touch on vaccines, the history of the current COVID vaccines, and so much more. I hope you've enjoyed this arc of episodes and would love your feedback. Reach out on Twitter at Tom Said What and let me know if you think this is the style of episodes you would like to, for me to continue. Remember that is at T O M S E D W H A T on Twitter. And please enjoy this final part of my conversation with my older brother, the doctor. Vaccines are effective in generating an immune response, particularly antibodies, to help um, uh, scavenge up the infection. Um, prepping some of the other cells in the immune system to be able to recognize when this particular virus has infected some of those cells. Um, I suppose going in two different directions here. One, um, when it comes to how well this keeps you from getting sick, the vaccines keep you from getting sick, they do a good job of keeping you from having symptoms of the illness, but because most of the antibodies are in your blood and because the virus likes the lining of your nose and throat, there is a chance, about a 10% chance it seems with the Pfizer, Moderna and the soon to be approved Novavax and possibly a 15 to 20% chance with the Johnson Johnson vaccine um, that you can get the infection, um, that it can start growing in your airway. You are unlikely to get seriously sick to need mm -hmm. to go to the hospital or need some of those more advanced treatments but you can still have it and you can still potentially spread it even though you're vaccinated right. and so being masked in those settings makes mm -hmm. sense until a broader swath of the population is effectively vaccinated right until we um, reach that sort of herd immunity thing which was all the rage back at the beginning of mm -hmm. the pandemic and then apparently has not been talked about a whole lot since so, because we realized that it was kind of a buzzword mm -hmm. that didn't really have a whole lot of meaning to it at least well not, so, so there is a meaning behind herd immunity but like it wasn't like if 51 percent of the population went out and got covid and survived mm -hmm. that we would now have herd immunity and everyone could just go do whatever they wanted right and i think there's an important distinction there so you get to herd immunity one of two ways either you get enough people infected that the virus now can no longer find another susceptible host mm -hmm. or you get enough people vaccinated that again the virus can't find a susceptible host right only one of those two options does not result in a large portion of the population particularly the elderly population dying from this and i think some of the advisors to the president's task force at through 2020 were advocating positions that basically said younger adults and kids who don't seem to get as sick from this should go out and get exposed and get the illness and therefore um, won't then be susceptible anymore 
Unfortunately, that means that you are choosing to sacrifice a portion of those individuals. And from a medical ethical standpoint, that's untenable. Right. Um, yeah. If yeah. the first uh, principle in medicine is to do no harm, um, to throw a little Latin at your listeners, primum non nocere, um, which uh, first above all things, do no harm, right. then the idea that we would encourage people to actively get sick when one we know how to prevent that two we knew the vaccines were on their way um we had so a little history sars comes up in 2003 mm-hmm. it infects about 12,000 people mostly in asia mm-hmm. um they're the closest it came to the u.s is principally toronto there were a dozen or so cases there Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there were one or two cases that crossed the border into the US but we don't see it much here but it has this effect on Asia where they're wearing masks and physically distancing and a host of factors back in 2003 but that was an alarm bell Uh, epidemiologists were looking at this and looking at globalization and uh, travel around the world and said hey if this had taken off if this had become the next great pandemic we don't have any tools to fight this specifically and SARS like the COVID-19 coronavirus, which is SARS coronavirus number two, right. um, are just that, coronaviruses. So mm-hmm. uh, investments were made in research into coronavirus vaccines, starting as far back as 2003. Right. And that's why we were able to get vaccines for this particular virus as quickly as we could. Exactly. Because it isn't that they only started working on it and they worked on it for like eight months. They've been working on it since 2003. Exactly. Right? And so there's MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is another coronavirus that came up in 2012. It only affected about 2,500 people, um, but it had a fairly high fatality rate, like 10 or 15%. Um, but it wasn't super contagious, and so it was able to be fairly well contained. And most of the cases are in... Uh, Arabian countries around Saudi Arabia, the um, uh, Persian Gulf, and so forth. Um, But so that was another alarm bell. Um, And so all this preparation with essentially model vaccines that we could then fairly rapidly prototype and start manufacturing. And so once the genome for this virus was sequenced, which came out like January 12th or 13th, the World Health Organization published the genome. Pretty early in Uh, 2020, right? um, And that's some of that's because this probably had been circulating in China for earlier than had come to our attention in the West. Um, But it still takes some time to isolate it, confirm what it is, and so forth. Right. In any case, so, so once you have the genome, Many of these manufacturers were able to start the process of doing um, bench research to figure out how to get it to work or how to get the vaccine to be made properly mm-hmm. and then start the human trials. Right. And Operation Warp Speed, mm-hmm. which I don't care for the name, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, it um, kind of seems to take away from one of our favorite franchises. Exactly. You know, but anyways. Um, but in any case, so that provided necessary funds so essentially the federal government um, helped pay for and assume risk for some of the early trials in an effort to promote these companies putting out this vaccine much more quickly Um, and then on the backside, it cut a bunch of red tape 
And so historically, if you were doing this kind of vaccine research, you would do a phase one trial and then you would submit your data and wait for um, a review. And then once that was reviewed and approved, move on to phase two then phase three right, um, right. and so right. forth. Um, and there are there are three principal phases to vaccine trials mm -hmm. um, by allowing the companies to keep moving forward while submitting their data and essentially um, not have to waste time waiting for bureaucrats to approve the next phase and so forth. Um, we were able to get through this fairly quickly. Now, also, unfortunately, we had enough cases of coronavirus throughout the United States that the trials were able to, in their phase three component, meet the sort of minimum thresholds to say, okay, we've seen enough cases in the placebo group um, versus not so many in the vaccine group in order to say that the vaccine has clearly been effective in preventing people from getting sick, sick right. compared to this control group. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so in a... Say we wanted to make a vaccine against one of the four coronaviruses that commonly cause cold and flu symptoms. Mm -hmm. It would probably take a decade of research. So enrolling that 30 to 50,000 people in a trial, it would take a decade of routinely testing them to confirm that um, the placebo group had gotten enough coronavirus infections to say that the, tested, the, the vaccine group had been adequately protected. Right. Yeah. We covered that ground with these coronavirus vaccines in six or seven months because of the number of infections in the United States. And right. so all of that gets us to this point of saying these work and they are relatively safe. Um, and, well, relatively safe. They are safer than getting COVID. Right. And as a consequence, coming back to our discussion of herd immunity, we can talk about knowing vaccines were on the horizon that vaccines were going to help us get out of this and get right. out of this um without putting the entire population at risk that's great yeah so um just again to kind of just put a bow on it just sure. to wrap things up because we have been going for quite a while on absolutely this conversation. um give me one thing that you see as we're kind of moving out of the pandemic right one thing that you see this pandemic has helped us learn and one thing that you think we haven't quite learned yet from this pandemic that we should be thinking about like what is what is something that the common everyday person the music teacher in me mm -hmm. is not thinking about that the medical field is um so first of all, what's that one thing that you think we have learned and we're going to continue on with? And then what's that thing we haven't figured out yet? So I think, I think from a medical perspective, we've learned how to, um, how to function with some of these new telemedicine options. And we've learned to integrate some of those so that... Um, yeah. Going back to that part of our that, conversation when we talked about technology and things like that. Right? The history of organized medicine or uh, of the the medical professional particularly the physician in the united states um over the last 150 years or so is this migration from doctors making house calls so so every doctor was a general practitioner really up until um after world war ii to some extent the 
the ophthalmologists start this back in the 1920s by creating their own specialty society for doctors that treat eye diseases. But it really, it's after World War II that we see this rise in the specialists. So you go from general practitioners who make house calls and, you know, they're in the community and they're respected members, but maybe they're not as prominent to um, becoming more centralized. And the doctor stops going out to your home because in order to see more people, you have to go to the doctor instead of the doctor coming to you. Um, and then this sort of rise of the industrial model of medicine. And I think that what we're seeing now is that some of these tools that are, as medicine has become an industry, tools are making doctors and other healthcare professionals more accessible in the home setting in a way that they weren't before. Mm-hmm. And it's a greater integration of um, digital technology um, with electronic medical record systems, with a younger group of physicians who are uh, taking this technology that they've been using in their classrooms and among their friends um, to places that we hadn't expected. And I, I think that the pandemic has helped accelerate that process. And we've learned a lot about how to use this and we're going to continue doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something that we've learned well. Okay. I think that the medical community as a whole has uh, some serious concerns about vaccine hesitancy, um, about some of the choices to ignore the expertise of the healthcare community. And quite honestly, um, I think we've highlighted some of the um, general distrust of institutions. And I think that there is a real worry that though we've got all these tools and it is now becoming easier to access the healthcare system, I think that there is a subset of people who are feeling very disconnected and disaffected. And um, that one of the things healthcare will have to look at is how do we engage with those? Mm-hmm. How do we get people who have decided that they don't trust anything anymore? to come back to the healthcare system so that they're not the ones um, we're trying to salvage, if you will, because their illness is now so far gone that we have to use a lot of resources to try and help uh, help pull them back from the brink, if you will. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. This You're has welcome. Been, you know, I, it's been a pleasure. It's been immensely educational to me and hopefully, you know, to my listeners out there then, um, just a different perspective mm-hmm. on everything that's been going on the last Absolutely. You know, year and a half. But uh, thank you very much. You're and, welcome. Uh, I hope to eventually have you back on at some point. And uh, um, to all of you listening out there, thank you for listening. And uh, I'll talk at you the next time.